Well, if you will pray with me one more time, we will dive right in. Father, again, we are so thankful. Thankful for the salvation you've given us through your Son, and thankful for your ongoing provision and your abundant mercies and abundant means of grace to keep us in Christ, to grow us, to bring us together as a body, to prepare us to see you face to face, and that you would allow us to be part of your design to bring glory to your name. You are an amazing God. Lord, please, this morning, just let your name be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm really, really thankful to be with you here this morning. Um, Have you guys ever seen photos that climbers take from the top of massively high mountains like Mount Everest or something? It's just breathtaking, isn't it? It's awe-inspiring to think about the view from the top of the world. And I want to share that that's what my preparations for this lesson have felt like. Um, This is a big lesson, but I realized it needs to be uh, because God's design for us to bear his image is breathtaking. It's beautiful. And so today that's what we're talking about. We're going to survey scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, several times and take in God's awesome design for us to bear his image, in particular as women. Now we live in a time of a lot of confusion. Our culture puts forth a dizzying and confusing array of messages regarding who we are, and especially what it means to be women, or men for that matter. It's a reality that we now live in a world that does not believe that gender or gender roles are God-given or that they should be God-given. So it's all the more essential that we, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, have a clear biblical understanding of God's design for men and women, not only for our own walk with the Lord, but also so that we can have a biblical influence on others, on the children in our lives. Um, On the children in our lives, in our workplace, with our friends, and so that we can live out the image of God in unity with the body of Christ and in our homes. Romans 12.2 calls us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can understand God's will, God's design for us as his children, as his daughters, adopted as his through the blood of Christ. So let's take a look at what God's word says about his design for us. And to do that, we need to start in Genesis 1. You can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to work our way from Genesis 1 through scripture several times. The first time we'll do it to understand what the image of God is. Uh, The second time we'll do it to understand God's design for mankind to bear his image. And then finally we'll do it once more to understand his design for us to bear his image as women. So by the time we're done today, some of these passages in Genesis should be very familiar. So on the outline, we're at number one. What is the image of God? So what is the image of God? Well, theologians agree on one thing, and that is whatever it is, it must be very important. And after that, they split 
in every direction. Some of these, I'm sure you've heard, some say it's the ability to appreciate beauty or the ability to experience emotions or to communicate. Some say it's man's conscience or his memory, his ability to reason or his ability to feel shame. Some say it's anything that makes people different than animals. The ideas go on and on. But the best strategy is to let God's word tell us, to look and see what God says about his image. So uh, in Genesis 1, um, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 26. This is the account of creation, and we're going to start our reading right in the middle of day 6. So verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, interestingly, here in Genesis 1, the author is emphasizing that God made man in the image of God. He uses the phrase three times in these verses, and he also uses the word likeness. But he's not concerned here to tell us in full detail what the image of God is. Genesis 1 only gives us an introduction to the image of God rather than a full description. Now, some of the things that are connected with God's image in Genesis 1 are the dominion over the created order. God wants an image bearer to exercise dominion over other creatures. We saw that in verse 26. Uh, The second thing that Genesis 1 shows us is a differentiation. We see that both in God and in man. The image of God is connected with a plurality, a differentiation. If we look at God's side, he said in verse 27, let us make man in our image. So the Godhead is introduced with these plural pronouns, although the totality of the Trinity is not unfolded here. But there is a hint that the Godhead has an image and there's a diversity that we find out later in God's word is the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, And that diversity in the Godhead is connected to the image of God. There's also diversity seen on man's side. God created man, male, and female. God intends two genders to be a reflection of his image. Then the third thing we see connected with the image of God in Genesis 1 is unity. In both God and man. There's plurality, but there's also unity. There are three members of the Godhead, and they are one God. The same is true on man's side. There are two genders, but in Genesis 2.23, when Adam first saw Eve, he said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She was different than the animals. There was a likeness that she uniquely bore to Adam. And then we also see in Genesis 2.24 that the man and the woman become one flesh in marriage. Finally, in Genesis 1, we see that God's intent for image bearers is to fill the earth. In Genesis 1.28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants his image to be displayed all over the planet. So those are four things that are connected to the image of God in Genesis 1. They're not the whole of God's image, but they help to introduce it. Now, surprisingly, as we continue through the Old Testament, God reveals very little 
about his image. In fact, we can summarize it in two points. We see, first, God's restriction on image destroyers. That's right at the bottom of the first page of your outline. So we need to read um, Genesis 3. Go ahead and turn there. In order to understand how God's image bearer became an image destroyer, we need to read Genesis 3, because Genesis 3 is a key chapter in the Bible, and we're going to be returning to it over and over again today. So we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter and its account of man's fall into sin. Um, I know it's kind of long, but it's going to make the rest of the lesson a lot clearer. So follow along with me in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Oh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called the wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God, just hear this mercy, made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now in Genesis 3, we see Eve was deceived. She ate the fruit. And we find the image of God hiding from God in the garden. And then after the fall, we quickly see the image bearer become the image destroyer. And we're on page two of your outline now. In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. One image bearer killing another image bearer. God took that personally. One of his masterpieces is dead, destroyed by another image bearer. And after that, sin multiplied on the earth to the point in Genesis 6 that God was sorry that he'd made man. In Genesis 9, we see that after the flood, God, the image maker, makes a restriction on the image destroyer. He implements capital punishment. Now, Noah is a fallen image bearer, but God still considers man to be an image bearer. Sin marred God's image terribly in man, but it didn't destroy it completely. The image of God is still present in some way. And so destruction of one image bearer by another is punishable by death. Now, God's original intent was for man to multiply and display God's image all over the earth. But what is man doing? He's not displaying God's image. He's destroying it. The second thing that we see in the Old Testament is God's restriction on image makers. The Old Testament clearly shows man's proneness and desire for idolatry. We already saw that destroying the image of God was a serious, sinful provocation when man would kill man. But equally serious is this provocation, that man would take up making counterfeit images and flooding the earth with those. God had something very strong to say about this. Exodus 20, you can turn there. This is where we find the Ten Commandments. And in verse 3, God said, You shall have no other gods before me. In verse 4, he said, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. Verse 5, You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the most basic thing we see here is that when an image or idol is made, God did not see it as himself. God is not honored by man's attempts to make an image unto God. Rather, God is offended by that. Yahweh is restricting them in image making. And why might that be? Because there's already an image of God on earth, right? It's man. But again, man is rebelling against God. God already has an image of himself on this planet, but man is discontent with that and wants to make his own images. So who carved the first image of God? God did when he made Adam. And so the restrictions in Exodus 20 reveals that God reserves the creating of images for himself. He alone gets to fashion the image. He did that when he created man, And that is the only image he wants. Making images may very well be man's attempt to be God, to dethrone God. But God puts a restriction here to help man be content with 
being the image bearer and not let him become the image maker. That's reserved for God alone. So the Old Testament does give us some very interesting insights into the image of God. But throughout the Old Testament, what also continues about the image of God is the absence of a specific definition of what it is. So why might that be? Well, the reason that the fullest description of God's image is not in Genesis 1 or anywhere else in the Old Testament is because God had a plan to reveal his image most clearly through his son. The image of God and its fullest display is so precious to God that he would not reveal it in its fullness until he could do it in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So that brings us to see on the outline, Jesus is the image of God. Turn now to Philippians 2, 6. So Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. He doesn't just bear the image. He is the image of God. And one aspect of the image of God in Christ is clearly seen in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. So read with me Philippians 2.6, who although he existed in the form of God, this is talking about Jesus, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, Jesus existed in the form of God, and that word form is a very similar word to the word image. Um, And then he didn't regard regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, being in the form or image of God did not lead Jesus to promote himself, to fight for his rights, but rather he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. We see in Jesus that the image of God is that of serving and giving, not grasping for yourself, your ideas, your rights, your own self-definition, but of humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. Now, the second key way in which Jesus shows us the image of God is in his unity with the Father. John 10.30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They're one. They're perfectly united, eternally joined in seamless unity. It's what we saw introduced in Genesis 1, both unity and diversity in the Godhead. So we see in Jesus that God's image is self-giving, sacrificial, servant-hearted love, completely in unity and oneness with his Father. We could summarize it this way. God's image is seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. We'll use that phrase a lot today. So unity and love. Each of the three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
reveals the image of God to be this image of seamless unity, cemented in self-giving love. Each of the three manifests this self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. And the Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. And none of that is diminished by the diversity within the Godhead, by their different roles. For example, the Father elects, the Son redeems, the Spirit regenerates. Their differences work in perfect love and unity. And because there is this self-giving love that flows between the members of the Godhead, they are so unified that they can be spoken of as one. To diminish any one of their unique roles would cause us to miss something of God and who he is. And it's that unity and that self-giving love that God created man to reveal about himself. That's the image in which men and women were created to bear this kind of seamless unity cemented in self-giving love. Well, that brings us to number two on the outline, mankind as God's image bearer. So now that we know what the image of God is, we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and focus on God's design for mankind to bear God's image. So we are at A, created in the image of God. So we already read Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we saw that God created man in his own image according to his likeness. And we also saw that he created man male and female. That's his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither, uh, neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. And the next we see B, God's image corrupted in man. Though men and women were both created in the image of God to bear his image of unity and self-giving love, we have also been equally impacted by and corrupted by sin. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1 and 2, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's majesty, his awesome power, his perfect design, his abundance. We can't even relate to that kind of perfection and innocence. Unfortunately, we can relate to Genesis 3. So we go from the wonders of his creation in chapters 1 and 2 to a very familiar territory in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we saw that the serpent came and slandered God, and Eve's heart was enticed away from being self-giving to being self-grasping, tarnishing the image of God in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves, when we grasp self-rule instead of trusting God. God's rule. So Eve sinned, and then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we've all been plagued by that ever since. See then on the outline is restored to bearing God's image in Christ. So turn to Romans 8, 28, and 29. Now we get some good news. When God saves us through the gospel of his son, he restores in us the ability to bear his image. 
Now, Romans 8.28 should be very familiar. It's a promise that we cling to. And we're going to see that this promise is connected to bearing God's image. So let's read beginning in Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is the good that God is accomplishing for those who love God? He's making us like Jesus. We can be confident that he's causing all things to work together to conform us to the image of his son. That is what happens when a life is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a rebel comes to repentance and faith in Jesus, she's forgiven. She's made a new creation. She has peace with God. She is freed from sin's rule and mastery of her. She's laid aside the old self, and she's being renewed. Her life increasingly displays the image of God, his unity, and self-giving love as she now lives for him in obedience and faith. She is being conformed to the image of Jesus, the image of God. Now this is so important to understand because this impacts not only how each of us live individually, but especially how we live with each other as the body of Christ. We can't live out the image of God without each other. I mean, how can we show unity and love by ourselves? (laughs) So turn to John 17. This is one of the places where we most clearly see God's heart for believers to bear his image of unity and love. This is on page three of your outline. Turn over to John 17. And I want you to listen to Jesus' heart as he prayed on his last night with his disciples. This is just hours before he will go to the cross. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. He's praying for us. Verse 21, that they may all be one. Now, what kind of oneness does Jesus have in mind? Well, he tells us, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. That's a powerful unity. It's just like the unity of the Godhead. And Jesus prays for our unity so that others understand what's true about him. Our unity puts God on display. Verse 22, the glory which you've given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. There it is again. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying that the world would know something about God's love through our unity. Here Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he's pouring out his heart to the Father, asking that we as the body of Christ, every last one of us, would be one, 
because that's how the world can know something about him. Our unity, our oneness, reveals him. It puts his image on display. And that unity is impossible without love. Colossians 3.14 says, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That's the image of God. Seamless unity, cemented in self-giving love. We get to display that in our love and unity with one another. So is it even an option to be a Lone Ranger? To be careless about fellowship with the body of Christ? Did you hear his prayer? Isolation is not for believers. Believers are saved into the body of Christ. And God makes himself known. He displays his image through our oneness and unity and connectedness and our love our care, our service, and encouragement for one another. And in that, we get to display God's image of seamless unity and self-giving love to the world. That's amazing. Now, within the body of Christ, we have lots of diversity. You don't necessarily see as much of it here on Thursday mornings, but if you look around on a Sunday morning, you'll see that at Grace Bible Church, we have women from virtually every season of life. And it's beautiful. Different seasons of life, different places in our walk with the Lord, different gifts, abilities, opportunities. And that's God's kindness to us as a body. Whatever season we are in is his good plan for us. But it's important that we carry our understanding of image-bearing into our understanding of the diversity that God puts into his church. We need to understand God's design is that we bear his image in whatever season we're in. It's his good for us. And we need to appreciate the ways in which his image is put on display in other people's season of life. We need to trust him for changing our season of life. Any married woman can become a widow. And any single woman can be married if God brings her a husband. And we need to encourage and build up and learn from those who are in different seasons than our own. God's design for our unity, even with our different roles and gifts and seasons of life, is beautiful. It's God's design for us to show the world something about himself. It's important. It's worth laboring for and persevering. Because apart from depending on the Lord, we'll only let our differences separate us. But in Christ, our differences become a beautiful platform for displaying Christ. And so I want to encourage you to cultivate unity, good, solid, Christ-centered relationships, not only with women who are in the same season of life, that's wonderful, keep doing that, but also with those who are in different seasons. And that can be challenging. We have different availability and different responsibilities. But with some thoughtful, prayerful consideration, we can cultivate this unity and love. Now, how might we do that? Well, we need to try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and think about what are some of the benefits and challenges of their season of life. And maybe we need to ask, what are some of the unique opportunities God has given you in your season for displaying his image? What are some of the challenges? How can I pray for you? We can send encouraging messages. I know a lot of you in Wellspring are already doing that. If you don't have a lot of time availability, maybe you can exercise together, cook, old laundry, go to the park. If you make an extra big batch of soup, you can just give some away. 
great chance to fellowship with somebody on the doorstep. Invite someone over for dinner. Don't assume that your season is harder than someone else's. Don't assume that they have more free time than you do. Don't wait for someone else to reach out to you. God is the one ordering each one of our days. And we cultivate unity and love when we encourage one another to be faithful in the season that he has given to each one of us. All right. So we've seen that Jesus is the image of God. Man was created in the image of God. And sin corrupted the image of God in us. And we've seen that believers are restored to bearing God's image through the gospel. We get to bear his image of unity and love in the midst of our diversity in the body of Christ. So now we're going to go back to Genesis 1, this time looking at God's design for us to display his image in our diversity as men and women. We're at number three on the outline, bearing God's image as biblical women. Now, we already saw that men and women are both made in the image of God, that both are equally corrupted by sin, that both can be saved through Jesus' death on the cross. Men and women can be restored to bearing God's image through the gospel. And these truths are collectively referred to as spiritual equality, and they're affirmed throughout God's word, both Old Testament and New Testament. Men and women have spiritual equality before God and each other. And maybe that sounds familiar if you've taken the membership class. Biblical conviction number seven on our church website explains biblical manhood and womanhood in terms of spiritual equality and role differentiation. And I think you have a copy of that in your notes. Do you have that in your notes? You do? Okay, good. Um, We decided to go ahead and give that to you as a handout because um, I want you to go back and read through that for your homework. It's just really helpful to see the biblical foundation for that all laid out. But we'll also cover most of that in our lesson today. Okay. So we've seen that God's word affirms the spiritual quality of men and women, but it also clearly teaches that men and women have different roles assigned to us by God. There's role differentiation in our families and in the church. That's part of God's design for us to display his image of unity and love. So one more time, we're going to walk through God's word in order to better understand the different roles that God has designed for us. So we're going to read Genesis 2.18. You can turn to Genesis 2.18. This is still before the fall. There's no sin in the world at this point. In verse 18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. God created man for a particular task and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of taking dominion over the earth. So God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam. 
He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. Now, another way we see different roles is that in Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created. And yet, by Genesis 3, we saw that Eve clearly knows the commands as well. Evidently, God had entrusted Adam with instructing Eve in his commands in this case. So right here in Genesis 2, we already see the beginning of differing roles for men and women before the fall, before sin entered the world. Also notice that God created man first and then the woman. God had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul will repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, Paul wrote, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Paul is appealing to the order in which man and women, woman were created as an explanation for their differing roles. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that women were created in God's image, and that we were created to be distinct from men, not identical, but complementary, equally bearing God's image as we fulfill different roles. God established that God established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. He created us in a different order, with different roles, and it was good. That all happened before the fall. So now let's turn to page four on our outline. As we saw in Genesis 3, unfortunately, sin entered the world, and it distorted our God-given differences. Now remember, man and woman already had different roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment at all. And the distortion of our roles didn't start when God pronounced the curse to women in Genesis 3.16. It started in the very beginning of chapter 3. We saw Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter. And he's evil and deceptive. In verse 6, we saw that she believed his lie, that if she gave in, she would become wise, and that God was keeping something from her. And so she disobeyed God and ate. And then she gave to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. So when Genesis 3 begins, who's Eve listening to? Who is she trusting in? She's trusting herself and her own wisdom. Think about Eve. What was her sin? We can identify independence, self-grasping, self-reliance. What was she doing listening to the serpent anyway? She was trusting her own judgment. She was getting out from God's authority, out from under her husband's leadership and protection, And she was seeking to satisfy herself. She was rebelling against God. Now at that point, was Eve bearing God's image of a servant, of self-giving love, of unity with her husband under God's commands? Was she fulfilling her role as a helper to Adam? How does she acknowledge Adam's leadership over her in this conversation? How does she honor God's right to define her role? Now, Adam certainly had his part, and he is fully responsible as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust 
something or somebody other than God. And as we live in this mixed condition, thankfully on this side of the cross, this is very familiar to us as well. How might we see that in our own hearts? Just like Eve, we may independently step out from the protection and leadership God has provided for us through the authorities he places over us. Our husband, our boss, our parents, our government, our church leaders. If we're married, we may independently step out from our husband's protection and leadership and try to grasp his authority. We may do it by taking charge, seeking to control, trying to manipulate as we exert our own will, stepping outside of God's design and falling into the same deception and sin as Eve. Now, you may be thinking, you know, I'm pretty sure I don't try to control, but it can show up in various ways. Remember our pride lesson last week? (laughs) For some of us, trying to control may be a quiet, silent treatment. Sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness or indifference. With others, it's a shouting hostility that isn't much of a secret to anybody. For some of us, we have a way of just bulldozing right over others with our words. I can relate to that. This is what sin does. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. Do you know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin seeks to destroy that image through undoing the roles God has for us. Sin distorts our God-given role differentiation. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forfeited life in the goodness of the garden. They lost unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth. Men have to toil and labor to provide for their families. No part of life from birth to grave has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. There's also death, and most seriously, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. You see, equal rights, men, gender, those things are not our problem like the world would have us think. We need to acknowledge that our problem is sin. Sin warps everything. Sin is the reason we need a Savior. Now, continuing through the pages of Scripture, we see the same pattern of spiritual equality and role differentiation. And remember, when we say spiritual equality, we're not talking about equality as in equal rights or something like that. Spiritual equality just means that we're sinners equally in need of salvation, we equally share in the blood of Christ, and we are equally called to be used in his kingdom in our differing roles. So in Old Testament Israel, men were responsible for the national and religious leadership from the garden to the final prophets. We have Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then to David and the rest of the kings, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nation. Women were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah were prophetesses and Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests or heads of tribes or kings, and that's significant. Now, that was the Old Testament. Um, If we take a look at the Gospels and Jesus' ministry on our outline, 
Um, we find in Jesus' ministry the very same thing. There's a consistent pattern. This is God's plan from way back, and it's continuing on. Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions, not even worthy to be taught the Torah, God's word. In fact, they believed it was better to burn the Torah than to teach it to women. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual or theological truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow women to even count change into their hands for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view. Jesus uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. Jesus revealed himself as Messiah to women. When Jesus visited Mary and Martha, Jesus taught Mary as she sat at his feet, and that was very countercultural. Jesus touched women, and he allowed women to touch him. In John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead, despite the fact that Jewish courts wouldn't even allow women to witness because they were considered to be liars. So you see, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and respect in a way that they had never known in their culture. He did not demean women ever. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. Jesus, at the same time, did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any women to be among the twelve. Now, that would have been the perfect time to do that. It would have been a prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed in the Old Testament, a time to establish a change for women's roles. But God, Jesus, did not change women's roles. Now, have you ever wondered why he didn't choose women disciples? It's because Jesus affirms and continues God's view and God's pattern for the role of women established way back at creation. Let's see, we're at New Testament epistles on the outline. The rest of the New Testament affirms the very same thing. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another, ever. For example, on your outline, Acts 18.26, Priscilla and his wife... uh, Sorry, I said that backwards. Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Did I get it wrong in the outline? Oh, good. (laughs) That would be Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They ministered together. They equally served Apollos to build him up with a more complete teaching on Christ. On the next page of your outline, in Philippians 4, 2, and 3, Euodia and Sintuki, who are both women, shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. And there are many other women, many, many other women that Paul lists in his letters as being gospel servants. Both men and women receive spiritual gifts. And 1 Peter 3, 7 says that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are still differences in roles. 
Now, you know, it's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at the spiritual equality in the New Testament. We love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You heard that phrase? That men and women have an equal need for Jesus and we have an equal cleansing in his blood. But we need to understand that the gospel is put on display every bit as much in the different roles that God gives for men and women in the New Testament. He's designed different roles specifically for us in order that we may participate together in displaying the image of God. Now remember, we saw that starting way back in Genesis 1, both the oneness and the diversity in the Godhead as well as in man. We need to remember that what we see in the word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It wasn't inspired by the culture of the day. We can trust God's design. Now, under bearing God's image in the church on your outline, you see a list of references where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described in the New Testament. And to summarize them, we would say this. For leadership roles in the church, the elders and deacons are offices filled by men. Men are primarily responsible for the teaching and protection of the body. As our leaders, they keep watch over us, they guard us, they're an example for us. They equip and build up and take care of the church and serve the church. They labor diligently. Men have the incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care and his loving servant leadership toward the body. What a responsibility they have. And God's word tells us to appreciate them and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And for women, the roles and privileges that God has given us display our trust in God's leadership for us through our church leaders. So we respond. We follow the lead of our elders and deacons. We learn from them. We imitate their faith. We obey. We submit so that their work will be a joy. And we serve and help cultivate the unity of the body so that together we more fully display Christ. We use the gifts and abilities and resources that God has entrusted to us as we serve under their leadership and in cooperation with their leadership. We display the unity and self-giving love of Christ. We bear his image as we serve under their leadership. So when we serve in our ministries in the church, they're all overseen by the elders and deacons. Wellspring is overseen by the elders, and I love that. There is protection for us in that. Our elders love the Lord, and they love his church, and they love us, and they care for us. They serve us in their leadership. We need their shepherding. We need their leadership, and it's so comforting to know that we have that. This is all about how God displays his shepherding love and protection and leadership for his people, and how we as his people trust him and follow his lead. Well, that brings us to bearing God's image in marriage, where it's C on the outline. No, is that B? B on the outline. Now remember, we've seen God's desire to have his image displayed in all the earth. So as we move from the church to marriage, let's think about a parallel here. Now, the first Adam was created in God's image, and he was given a bride, Eve, 
to help him display that image. But that all failed miserably in sin. And so Jesus, God's son, the second Adam, that's what he's called in 1 Corinthians 15, who is the image of God, came, and God gave him a bride. That's the church. The church is called the bride of the lamb in Revelation 21. And God gave Jesus that bride to help him display his image everywhere to the ends of the earth. Isn't that amazing? And this relationship between Christ and the church is what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians 5. So go ahead and turn there with me. Ephesians 5. Paul used this relationship between Christ and his church to assign a very unique privilege to marriage. Now, not all of us are married, and none of us are in a perfect marriage, but there's a bigger message that we need to understand. Even if you're not married, there are still many authorities in your life to whom you must submit. And cultivating biblical heart attitudes about marriage and submission will prepare you if marriage does come. It also equips all of us to encourage one another to have a high biblical view of God's design to display the church's love for Jesus in our marriages. So read with me and listen to how often Paul refers to the church in the midst of his teaching about marriage. We're going to read beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh this mystery is great but i'm speaking with reference to christ and the church see the mystery is not the husband and wife the mystery is christ and the church that unity is truly mysterious nevertheless each individual among you also is to love his wife own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So here Paul is teaching on marriage, and the whole time he's highlighting the church's relationship with Jesus. He wants to shine a spotlight on this precious relationship between the bride and her husband Jesus. So we need to understand this. Marriage is about displaying the way God relates to his people and the way his people relate to him. That's what's to be unfolded in our marriages. Isn't that much bigger than what we tend to think? Marriage has this incredible privilege and responsibility of showcasing Christ's love relationship with his church. So what does that mean for a wife? What role does a wife play in marriage in displaying that? In Ephesians 5.22, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything 
And then verse 33, the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. The wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly yielding herself to the authority God has placed over her in her husband. Submission literally means to line yourself up under. It's how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's role. And just think about this for a minute. God saved us out of being self-grasping, and now we get to give ourselves away to display Jesus. And if we remember that, that we're now being renewed in the image of Christ, of unity and self-giving love, then submission is a privilege. It doesn't display his image to be self-grasping, contentious, complaining, controlling, manipulative, irritable. Neither does it display Christ to offer some kind of outward compliance without truly desiring and pursuing love and unity from our hearts. It doesn't display Christ to think about marriage as a ball and chain or as that which is supposed to make us supremely happy. No, as believers, our treasure, our joy, our heart's delight is in Jesus. And he frees us from slavery to self to serve him. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband. Marriage is a precious opportunity to display the submission of the church to Jesus. And we need to recognize that men have a weighty call. And a wife helps her husband not by taking over, not by criticizing, but by following him, respecting him, being supportive of his decisions, encouraging him, praying for him, being a faithful sister in Christ. Even if a woman's husband is not a believer, his wife needs to be understanding of how challenging his role is. And she needs to live with him in such a way that he's encouraged and strengthened to fulfill those responsibilities and appreciated for all that he does. Biblical submission is challenging. But God's call on husbands is not easy either. Think about what Ephesians 5 has given a husband to do, to love his wife like Christ loves the church. No days off, a job that's never done, and a standard that's impossibly high to love as Christ loves the church. Let's let that fuel in us a desire to display the image of our great Savior well by submitting to our husband as to the Lord and by encouraging others to do so as well. That's how a wife gets to selflessly portray the submissive church. Selflessly, because that's the image of God in Christ. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life away. That's what service is. It's giving ourselves away. Jesus gave himself away, and we selflessly give away ourselves in submissiveness. We portray the submissive church. Whether we're single or married, we all have the privilege of displaying our trusting submission in the Lord by submitting to the authorities that God has over us. Whether it's a husband, parents, government, boss, church leaders, we display God's image, the self-giving love of God by having a quiet and gentle spirit, which is beautiful in God's sight. When we fulfill our God-given roles and live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, under our husbands, under other authorities, 
the word of God is honored and the gospel is put on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to the watching world the relationship that we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. That's exciting. This is good. This is why we embrace who God has created us to be because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world through not only our spiritual quality, but also through our different roles. We will find freedom and joy, not in casting off his design, but in embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is knowing Christ and making him known. We must be women of God who embrace what God gives us to make him more visible. So how does all this connect with our Wellspring disciplines? Well, discipline one, we must shepherd our hearts. Only in clearly beholding our God in his word will we be able to increasingly display his image of seamless unity and self-giving love. Those are qualities that must flow from our heart for God. Discipline two, his image must be put on display in our homes in pursuing unity and pouring ourselves out in self-giving love with the people with whom we live and in respectful, joyful submission to those in authority over us, especially our husband. And it's our privilege to display the precious love of the church for her Savior. Discipline three, his image must also be put on display in our church, in our unity, in our love, in our appreciation for all the diverse members that God has assembled together and embracing, and also by embracing the role that he has given us as women as we submissively obey and serve and encourage and employ all our gifts for the building up of the body under the servant leadership of our shepherds. And by God's grace, the church will be strengthened And the gospel mission will advance to the ends of the earth, putting God's image on display everywhere, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that your word is so rich. Thank you for your beautiful design. Lord, who are we that you would even create us to be your image bearers? Thank you for renewing us in the image of Christ through the gospel. You are such a great God. I pray that you would help each one of us to stand in awe of you and to find great joy in persevering and following Christ and being made more and more likely like you to display your image of seamless unity cemented in self-giving love everywhere we every, every part of our life. In Jesus' name.